Hello and welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. Unquestionably a towering figure of the past century, the German conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler's recordings continue to aspire adoration and controversy nearly 70 years after his death. No more so than in the past few weeks, as a new box set, the complete Wilhelm Furtwängler on record, containing not only his entire catalogue of studio recordings, but every live recording made with a view to a commercial release, has been released on Warner Classics. A musical prodigy with initial aspirations to be a composer, Furtwängler is best known for his conductorship of the Berliner Philharmonica between 1922 until, with a gap, his death in 1954, and his performances of the great Austro-German tradition, Beethoven, Brahms and Wagner especially, both live and in the studio, continue to have legions of die-hard fans across the world. To discuss the musical legacy of this legendary figure, I've managed to pull in every favour and brought together two rather legendary figures themselves. First, writer, broadcaster and friend of the show, Rob Cowan, and secondly, making his second appearance, the founder and executive editor of ClassicsToday.com and bona fide YouTube sensation, Dave Hurwitz. Welcome back, Rob. Pleasure. Lovely to be here, especially with Dave, I must say. <laughs> we sparred online, which is great, um, but I'm delighted to be talking to him. And welcome back, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. The feeling is absolutely mutual. Rob and I go back a ways, and it's, it's a thrill to be able to have a live conversation with him and with you. Well, perhaps most interestingly to those who know his recordings well, included on this set is some previously unreleased material. Rob, what stands out about the recording of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, for me at least, a Furtwängler specialty in the box? Well, it's a live recording. We do have other live recordings of the Unfinished Symphony, and of course there are various other recordings. What makes this special is it underlines one of the great virtues in Furtwängler's conducting style, and that's his uh, ability to mold a transition, especially at the end of the exposition section of the first movement at the beginning of the development, where he he um, reduces the sound of the orchestra to an absolute whisper, then everything turns round and up comes the music again, incredibly quietly. It's almost like there's a gathering of storm clouds and it's graphic. I'm going to be using these sorts of terms because it's the only way I can think of describing Furt Wangler's performances, he was somebody who brought music, great music, into contact with the great outdoors. You forget there's a score, you forget there are players, you forget there are crotchets and quavers. All you think about are the elements, and that's where you are with Furt Wangler, and that's certainly where you are with this uh, performance of the Unfinished Symphony. Well, let's sample it now. This is with the Vienna Philharmonica, from 1950.
On the whole, would it be fair to say that Furtwängler had, by modern standards, a rather limited repertory? And do his most famous recordings have that status because they were of music which Furtwängler could stamp his own personality on? Yes and no. Uh, generally speaking, most of them are. Wagner, Beethoven, Brahms, uh, and a certain amount of uh, Mozart and Haydn. Uh, Bruckner, of course, he adored and he, he uh, uh, conducted with sovereign authority. Um, but there were things like uh, Hindemith's symphonic metamorphosis on themes of Weber. Of course, he conducted the world premieres of Schoenberg's variations and Bartok's first piano concerto with Bartok at the piano. Uh, there's also his own music, his second symphony, which I have to say, I'd be very interested to know what Dave thinks about this, but I think the second symphony has got some wonderful music, especially in the first movement, which is genuinely memorable thematically. And um, things like the Stravinsky symphony in three movements, which I don't think is a terribly good performance, but he did conduct it and it is uh, recorded. So, no, I mean, in general, he preferred the classics, the romantic classics and the, uh, uh, the classical repertoire, but there is some 20th century music there. Do you feel that's actually overlooked these days when we could talk about Furtwängler? Well, you agree, Dave? did it so badly. Seriously, he didn't particularly care for Hindemith. He conducted it out of out of what he considered to be his his duty um, to contemporary music, but but it wasn't he wasn't a composer with whom he was in any particular sympathy, and and as as Rob has pointed out, uh, you know he also did. I, I love it when Forfengler people said, "Oh yes, well he conducted the Rite of Spring." Well, <laughs> thank God we don't have to hear him conducting the Spring. I mean, one can only imagine how that turned out. He conducted Nielsen's Fifth Symphony. He did music of his time. He didn't leave us recordings of much of it, which I think is probably healthy. Um, but as to his Second Symphony, I mean, it may come as a shock to Rob, but I think it's a minor masterpiece. I, I really do. I think it's a very, very fine work. Um, I, I, and I, and I, I think his other music is just dreadful. <laughs> it's horrible. No, it, it, the it, second, in, in the Second Symphony, he managed to squeak one out, you know. That yeah, was, yeah. And, that's, and that, to me, is typical of Fort Wengler, generally. You know, I mean, he will play the same thing 150 times, but, you know, time number 92 is the one where he really got it. The second is really a fine, a fine, fine work. Yeah. And I actually had a, a bit of a, 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 an encounter over the Second Symphony with Daniel Barenboim, you know, who made a recording of it, a very good recording of it, because he originally was going to do the Third Symphony. And he told me that when we were doing something at the Con Classical Awards. And I said to him, no, you don't want to do the Third Symphony. You've got to do the Second. I mean, even though that's the one Fort Fangler himself did a couple yes. of times. Yes, because it's really a fine piece of music. I mean, it's, it's it's derivative, but excellent, I think. Well, you can remember the themes. Yeah, and the scherzo, which almost sounds Spanish when the trumpet comes in. But look, what about Bartok? What about the Bartok second violin concerto with Yehudi Menuhin? That's a good accompaniment, just as Mengelberg's was. It is. It is. And one thing that, well, one thing that Fort Wengler was was, um, you know, an excellent accompanist. He was a very great opera conductor in those operas that he did. I, I don't take anything away from him in that. But, but in not taking anything away from Fort Fengler, I have to say 
you know, I, I hear from Ford Wengler people, well, but what a wonderful accompaniment. But when you talk about a conductor who everyone says is a great accompanist, such as Eugene Ormandy, everyone says, oh, he was just an accompanist. But with Ford Wengler, you get, oh, it was Ford Wengler, the accompanist. And you get, ah, oh, Ormandy, the accompanist. You know, there's a double standard. Yeah. And, it's not, yeah. and it's not fair. No. You know, of course he's a good accompanist. I mean, that's his bloody job. And, uh, you know, I mean, a conductor who can't accompany somebody has got some real issues. But it is. It's a very fine Bartok second concerto. There's no question about it. He, he does a good job with it. And, like, that's what we call, like, professional competence. Yeah, I mean, why is that such an extraordinary quality in Fort Wengler when it isn't in anybody else? Well, it's nice to know that he felt sympathy for the music, which, you you know, as you said about the Hindemith, I mean, the Hindemith, especially in the Turin Dot Scherzo and the jazzy bits and the second half of it, uh, not exactly Benny Goodman, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then you again, know. the Hindemith wasn't exactly Benny Goodman. No, no, no. <laughs> <But> that's okay. <laughs> well, according to some, Furt Wengler's performances didn't start, but emerged how does Beethoven's second Leonora Overture emerge on your first selection, Dave? Um, well, rather <laughs> constipatedly, <laughs> if that's a word. You know, these are simple eighth note chords separated by pauses. And in Fort Fangler's interpretation, you have no idea how many notes are in those chords. You know, they just go, whomp, whomp. You know, some of them sound like they have two notes. Some of them sound like they might be, you know, I, I don't know. It's a mess. It's just a mess. And it, there are certain basic things that, you know, conductors need to do. And I really believe that Fort Fengler's, Fort Fengler's whole comment about how he wanted the music to emerge organically and all that stuff, and that's why he couldn't play one chord in strict time, is, is just such hooey. I mean, it's such nonsense. I, these, are, these are basic qualities that, that every conductor should get. And I'm not saying that you know, a little bit of imprecision is the bad thing. I mean, it's not necessarily, but with Fort Fengler, it's a chronic thing. It's a defect. It's a mannerism. And, um, and I think he takes it way too far. And in that performance of the overture, the pauses are stretched out and the unisons are anything but unison. And uh, that's just bad conducting, period. Well I'll tell you something. I was listening this morning to the version, the live version that's on the Deutsche Grammophon box um, from the early 1950s, and it's a world of difference. Uh, it's like the, or maybe it's 49, it's, it's like the EMI recording is a sort of template, but once he gets into the concert hall, he realises what he's really after, with the orchestra. Now, you say those opening chords are imprecise, but they're 
Tuscanini like in comparison to the ones that are on the live Berlin Philharmonic. <laughs> um, and the beautiful, um, the beautiful passage later on in the overture where Florestan's aria emerges, it is breathtaking on the DG performance, absolutely breathtaking. It's beautiful on the MI recording, but it simply isn't on that same elevated plane. So I think I think that we want to talk later about the difference between live and studio recordings. But, you know, although I think because of Schenkerian analysis and the way Furtwängler studied the harmonic architecture of music, his performances were actually quite similar. Um, the mood and temperature and climate of different performances of the same piece tended to vary subtly. And that's certainly true of these two versions of Leonora number two. I'm not saying that if we didn't have the DG version, we wouldn't want the EMI, but yeah, the Warner's EMI version is marvellous. But, it, it, well, I think it is, but it's not on the, <laughs> it's not on the same plane as, 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 the, as the DG one. Yeah, I don't think it's marvelous. I don't think we need it at all. <laughs> well, I, really, I really don't. I mean, you, you know, you know, I, I, an artist really deserves to be remembered by their best work. I, I really, I really believe that. And I really, I know we're going to talk about it later, but maybe this is a point to mention it. You know, so many of these recordings were were never released with authorization, and I have a feeling that if Fort Wengler had an opportunity to sit down and decide, this is what, this is what I want to. Re represent me many of the things that people rave about would never have been written. i think that's true about a lot of discs but apparently the whole point of this set is that he did authorize virtually everything that's in it um even the live performances they were live performances that he authorized and what was very interesting because the marvelous set that the berlin philharmonic brought out which i have of wartime recordings has got a tremendous essay it's got great annotation in it and apparently the rome ring which emi did eventually issue he wanted that to be recorded by emi he rated that very highly not the scala one the scala one was uh, has only ever been brought out on a sort of pirate series right. of CDs. Uh, but um so I think in this set, the interesting thing, maybe it's worth dwelling just a moment on what actually is in this set, because it can be confusing. When I first saw it, I thought, you know, all the, the complete records, I thought, that's absolute rubbish. There are hundreds of CDs of Footbanger that, that I've got that aren't in this set. But what it actually is, and, and I think Paul alluded to this uh, in his introduction, it's all the commercial recordings that Footbanger made for Polydor, for HMV and later for Deutsche Grammophon. And that includes all the pre-war records on Polydor in fabulous transfers. I can't tell you how, well, you probably know how great these transfers are. Um, the HMV um, 78s like Beethoven's Fifth, Tristan and his older music, Parsifal, and then the post-war recordings. And then the post-war Polydor recordings, like the Furtwängler Second Symphony, the Schumann Fourth, uh, the Schubert Ninth, and the Haydn 88th. All these are in there. I'm not quite sure how they got permission to issue those, but but not not the Brahms First, is it? I mean, I well, haven't received the set yet. It hasn't. Come well, out. the Brahms First, the 78th. That was on Deutsche Grammophon. No, the one that was on Deutsche Grammophon. Yeah, there's the one now, but that's a live recording, so yeah. that's not. I don't know whether that's. And the, and the Brahms first that's in the set is the one that was on 78s. Right. 
the Bernard, which which is all right. Uh, but the EMI later brought out a live recording with the Vienna Philharmonic, which is frankly much better in my view, anyway. Um, and the Brahms first Deutsche Grammar. All those you see what happened on the tenth anniversary of Footwangler's death in 1964, they started to issue these live performances, like Brookner 9 from 1944, the Brahms 3rd. Right. Um, no, no, the Brahms 3rd was EMI. And, and you know, EMI brought stuff out as well. These are not in the set, generally speaking. The Brookner 8 and 9 from uh, the early 50s with, um, with the Berlin Philharmonic, which EMI brought out on their bright clang series a sort of <laughs> yes. electronic stereo which sounded bloody awful um th that's not in there so, but everything that was authorized by foot wangler himself and a few extras that were never before really previous like the schubert that we've just heard mm -hmm. uh they were the they they are the things in the box so actually it is what it says on the box um, but you know, you have to go far and wide to find other things which are wonderful, but um, you've got to be selective. And then there's the wartime stuff, which um, DG brought out most of it, but of course, uh, for a more comprehensive selection, you have to go to the Berlin Philharmonic themselves. Yeah. Well, much is discussed about Furthinger's unique conducting style, labeled by some as like a puppet on a string. Is this fundamentally a very high-risk conducting style that actually required a lot on the musicians themselves to do the basics? Well, yeah, I mean, actually, it's, it's, it's rather fascinating to look at because, you know, aside from his inability to give a downbeat, he, he then <laughs> proceeded, if you see the videos of him conducting, I remember it vividly, and I'm sure Rob has it committed to memory, the Don Giovanni recording where he's in the pit, right? And you see him raise his hands, and then he begins to go into this sort of a seizure. <laughs> you know, he just starts, he just starts <laughs> trembling and wiggling, and the baton starts going all over the place. I, I actually, one of the things, and I, and I say this in all seriousness, that I think he actually did give to us musically that was really astonishing in a way no one else did was he made the music sound difficult. And I mean that, I mean that in a good way and a bad way. He made it sound difficult in the sense that watching him do it was, was sometimes agonizing and listening to him do it is sometimes agonizing because he doesn't succeed. But on the other hand, when he does, you know, it is this, this, this birth experience almost, you know, there's this unbelievable struggle that he brings to his relationship with the music. It can be thrilling. It's, that's it a pivotal be. word. That's a pivotal word, struggle. And it's most vividly illustrated in a recording that unfortunately isn't in this set is the Grosse Fuga by Beethoven from 1951, where mm -hmm. you can actually feel the struggle. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, a phenomenal effect so i think you're absolutely right in the right music um it works wonderfully well in the wrong music it, it like the symphony in three movements by stravinsky where you don't oh, have rhapsody espanol <laughs> oh my god don't i mean <laughs> no, no I, I mean these are not things he should really uh, have all really the german drawing of the malaguania you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Mind you, his Eric Coates album is very good. <laughs> <laughs> all, all great conductors did wonderful light music. Yes. But they made it sound like great music. Well, the Fledermouse Overture in this set 
in a phenomenal transfer is absolutely marvellous. I mean, the end of it is is totally brilliant. The pizzicato polkas and everything like that. Listen, um, even even Knappers Bush got the flater mouse. No, the Knappers Bush <laughs> thing you want to hear is the the uh, uh, Badna Madeline, where, where where it's so exaggerated right. as it makes anything by Fort Wangler sound by sound like Trevor Pinnock. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it does. No, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, alongside Beethoven, Furt Wengler is probably most closely associated with the music of Richard Wagner. And Rob, your second pick is a, is a bleeding chunk. The immolation scene from Götterdämmerung with the legendary Kirsten Flagstadt. A thrilling ride into the flames for you? Well, this is from something that I don't think Warners have ever reissued before. This is really exciting because they've got the metal parts, which means that you get the best possible sound out of the recordings. I think they have been reissued on pirate discs, but not sounding like this. This is 1937, Flagstar, Melchior, and other great singers. Uh, I just wanted uh, bleeding chunks of Wagner under Footwangler are virtually pointless because line was everything to do with it. You know, you can't really here. You just simply got a, a tiny shard, and it it uh, it's hardly representative. But but you've got some thunder here, which is virtually John Culshaw standard. <laughs> I mean, it's so exciting. Um, yes, the balance of the orchestra is a bit naff. You know, you've got the violins or the first violins in your face and. Uh, but you get used to it because the sheer drive of the performance is amazing. Right, let's sample that now. As you mentioned there, the ebb and flow of Wagner's vast musical web landscapes respond well to Fernand Wengler's approach, don't they? They, they, they absolutely do. Oh, you know, absolutely, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a terrible romantic myself when it comes to a lot of these things. And, and with Wagner, I, I'll be totally honest with you about this, Dave. You know, the Foot Wengler ring was coming out on HMV on LP, okay? Mm -hmm. And I was didn't have any money in those days, and I was saving up for it. And um, one of the things I bought in a cheapo record shop in preparation for it was um, a box of records from of Bayreuth performances under Savalish and Knappetsbusch. You probably know it. Parsifal under Knappetsbusch, Flying Dutchman, Tannhäuser. Um, sure. Um, it's always Parsifal under Knappetsbusch. It's always <laughs> <laughs> I played this set and the Parsifal absolutely swept me away. I used to go for walks in the forest and everything like that. The music was with me and in my head and everything. It was, it was wonderful. Funnily enough, when the foot Wengler, I can be honest about this now, as I was just a bald-faced liar then. Um, when the foot Wengler came out and I listened, 
I was disappointed with it because it didn't have that same ambiance and intensity that the Cannabis Bush Parsifal with Hans Hotter, uh, mm -hmm. Irene Dallas had, which was uh, the most fantastic performance. So I think this, but, but I'm, I'm straight off the point of it there. The association with nature, I think, is with in virtually everything. You know, with Bruckner, you have sort of craggy mountain silhouettes. You have weather. You have inclement weather. You have storm clouds. You have beautiful sunshine. You have all this in the music, and it's what the music suggests. What you never have is cathedrals or concert halls. Mm doesn't bring that to the music at all it's elemental which is my, which is why his versions of the eighth and ninth symphony well fifth eighth and ninth symphonies in particular are so magnificent well i think i think i think about you know you've got a you've got a point there i mean see fort fangler you can always count on him for a climax he knows where the music is going he always knows where the music is going. He knows where the peaks are. But, you know, if, if nature is our analogy, then, you know, with the craggy mountains, you have the desolate swamp <laughs> that, that, that sits there festering between the craggy mountains. You know, I mean, it, it's, all about, it's all about motion and how you get there and whether or not he's, he's fully engaged in such a way. Uh, you know, even when he, he did the Tristan, the, the EMI Tristan, which I think is a glorious performance. I really do. You know, especially for Schwarzkopf's two high C's. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's, you know, he was even concerned that at times he let the tempo go a little bit too much. It doesn't bother me. But there are moments, there are moments that in, in almost every performance he does where in between that incredible excitement that he managed to generate and the beautiful transitions between sections, everything just, it, it just dies. And in his great performances, he sustains the tension, you know, through those episodes. And you do, you do feel the, the, the architecture come through in the way he had in mind. But as often as not, you don't. You know what he's doing. You know what the conception is. But there's great frustration. <laughs> Luckily uh, for us, normally we have, say, two or three performances. One of them misfires and the and the uh, method he uses really doesn't work. And there's another one where it does work. So you can compare the two. And Brahms third is one of those examples. But we're talking it is, about it is, it is one of those examples because, yeah. because in the example that we're going to play, maybe we'll, we'll do it after this. Avoid, does it not work? <laughs> but there are other recordings of the Brahms third he's done that are, that are magnificent. And, 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 you know, again, my feeling about this is it, it, it's, it's a disservice to the listening public to say you have to get five recordings of the same work to get one or two that sound well and or that really do what, what he says he's going to do. I'm not contesting the fact that he does them. I'm talking about the difference between, between putting together a sensible record collection that contains fabulous performances by a great artist and being a, a, a cult member. <laughs> and and you know fanatically fanatically pursuing every scrap the man did as if it's some kind of holy writ. I mean, in addition to that, I just have to again speaking personally. I mean, I was never sort of wandering in the forest listening to Wagner. That was not my thing. I am not. I am not constitutionally any any fan over other kinds of music of the German school. I don't care about Beethoven, Brahms, and Wagner more than I care about Ravel, Debussy, and Chopin. I truly do not, <laughs> or, or Verdi and Donizetti. I, I, I don't may think about music that way. And therefore, I don't subscribe to the theory 
that everything that Fort Vanguard did is important because the repertoire is more important because there's some sort of, you know, mystical or Deutsch that we're going to discover and encountering. <laughs> no, you know, no, I wouldn't say that, German would I? No. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't buy into that. Yes. And so, and so, um, for, so for that reason, he's starting a little bit further back in the pantheon with me, simply because I don't regard the music as as more important than any other music. If it's played okay. well, it's played well. So you, you if know, it isn't, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're a bit of a relativist then when it comes to music. Would you say that? Let's call it. I'm a universalist. Okay. I love music. Okay. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't take national schools as as meaningful. That's a European thing. You, you guys are all the nationalists. I am not American. I am an eclectic polyglot mongrel. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do nationalism. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I mean, so I, I really think that part of a conductor's job is to do music well from whatever, whatever school, if you want to call it that, it comes from, and to be able to turn in idiomatic performances of it. And I think in that respect, Fort Wengler, we talked about at the very beginning, was an extremely limited figure because he, although he did dip into these other things, he was very, very, um, and deliberately so, restricted to the basic German repertoire. But there are lots of German conductors about whom that's true. I mean, Thielemann is doing it now. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's just going, ah! <laughs> you know. well, I think Fort Wangler was just great in things he connected with and sure. you know, for whatever reason that that's uh, mind you his Otello is pretty impressive yeah it's all right but look he could Fort Wangler was so limited he couldn't even do Richard Strauss <laughs> very well oh what metamorphosing no oh no he no. drives that forward oh come on that it's just, oh it's that's just, wonderful it's just, it's just mud <laughs> well, he could say that about I mean, the maybe music the piece in an unsympathetic you know? performance, but oh, he drives it forward. It's it's heartbreaking. I don't agree you know, with you about that. I must. That's be okay. That's okay. <laughs> you can agree to disagree. Well, as we've discovered, Dave, you're not as uncritical as some towards uh, Fert Wengler's musical legacy, and you've picked an excerpt from a recording that isn't in the box as an example of a Fert Wengler misfire. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just listen, listen to those violins fling themselves at that passage and, and going off the rails like, a, like your average community orchestra on a bad day. And this is, this is the Vienna Philharmonic we're talking about in Brahms. And, you know, I suppose it takes a certain, a certain tremendous gift to make them play that badly. And, of course, the other point worth noting is that, is that uh, he completely rewrites the timpani parts. Um, which are, do not exist in anything like the form in which they're played in this little excerpt. Um, and uh, again, I, I have to say, what, what fascinates me about this is that if, if uh, you know, Leopold Stokowski had done it, it would have been called the acme of vulgarity wow. and showmanship. And of course, the difference is that Stokowski would have gotten them to do it accurately. So the vulgarity and showmanship would have been offensive because it's done so well. Dave, can I just, you know, can why, I just, why is it? <laughs> can I just say it's the Berlin Philharmonic, not the Vienna I'm sorry, the Berlin Philharmonic. Excuse oh, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. Um, thank you. 
But uh, seriously, why why is it that if someone like Stokowski does these things, reorchestrates the passage and and speeds up and slows down and does all of this stuff, it's it's just it's just terribly showmanlike and, and, and artificial. But when Fort Wengler does it, it's organic and mystical, Rob, <laughs> and, and and you know sublime and, and, and reaching for the great beyond. And no, it's not. I'll, it's I'll give you my view on this when we heard just it. bad playing <laughs> period and there's, uh, there's there's no excuse for it no excuse for it whatsoever and as far as you know all the rewriting and all that stuff that's okay but then let's be fair other people do it too and they do it just as well if not better so you know well let's sample it now this is the excerpt of Brahms third symphony the finale with the Berlin Phil uh, from 1949 <laughs> Uh, Hugh Bean, leader of the Philharmonia, who played under him, claimed that Furt Wengler didn't want precision in orchestral playing. He certainly doesn't get it here, does he? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, everything, it's everything he could ask for <laughs> in the way of just, precision. Can I just say, there's another Brahms third with Furt Wengler, Deutsche Grammophons, which is from 1954. And if you compare the finale on that with the finale on the version we've just heard from 1949, the violins are much more precise. It's much oh, yeah. better. No, play. they get it. They get uh, it. They get it. But there's a big, big difference in the first movement. In the first movement in 1949, he launches the symphony on a massive crescendo. Mm -hmm. The exposition is so exciting that unlike on the 1954 he cues the exposition repeat 1954 version he doesn't take it and the, this is very important for me this business about repeats you know sort of mock scholar reviewers and critics today start going on about repeats and saying yeah, i don't give a damn about repeats. no i don't <laughs> it's not like you know for, for example vorjak wrote a repeat in the first movement of his new world he didn't want anybody to take it so you can't go about that um but the thing is the wonderful thing about Fort wangler's 1949 brahms 3 is you feel He's making the repeat because he's hungry to repeat that passage again. And it sounds totally logical, whereas other repeat, like the G minor symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic, very, very similar. Um, oh, but he's, he's hungry to repeat it because they did it right. They didn't do it right. So yeah. He was afraid of yeah. taking the repeat. I know it was going to happen. There are extremes in this performance. Um, yeah. It is so full of temperament and fire. Yes, there are imperfections, but the thing is, you know, you, you take the imperfections on board. I remember going to a, a friend's place um, years ago. Uh, we, had a, we used to have little record evenings and used to play records uh, to each other. Yeah. Uh, some of them were critics, some of them weren't. And I took a Brahms symphony. It wasn't the third. It was, I think it was the first with Furtwängler, a live recording. And um, 
one of the guys there was a teacher and an orchestral musician. And I said, look, listen to this. Listen to how this happens and that happens and that. He hated it. And all he could do was criticize it. And the interesting thing was that after I'd heard his reactions, I suddenly could only hear what was wrong with the performance. And it was only later on when I recalled what was being played and how it was being played and what that performance meant to me in terms of the way it was expressed that I got my true priorities back. Uh, and I think I think they put this in the notes, Dave. And yeah, that's, that's where the mystical part came in. <laughs> yeah, that's where the... <laughs> and so, you know, to me... The Brahms, this program that the, the, the BBC aired in 1964 for the uh, 10th anniversary of Fort Bangor's death, I think it opened with the Brahms, that Brahms third. And I, which mm. was a work in those days I didn't know. And it, I thought, oh my God, you know, what's this? And for ages I looked for the recording and couldn't find it. And eventually I found, I found other Brahms third, but they just didn't do the same thing. So look, Okay, I respect what you say. I think in many respects you're right. Uh, but for me, that inhabits an emotional climate, a heated emotional climate that no other performance of that music uh, shares with it. Well, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, listen, listen, what moves you moves you. I yes. mean, it doesn't matter whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Ultimately, as record collectors and music lovers, we our right is to hear what we love. Yes. And if we love something, I mean, I, there are plenty of awful performances that I love. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and, and I, but I don't be the first person. I like junk food. I mean, junk is junk. That's my point. And, you, you know, so, yes, Fort Fangler, you may love it, an awful performance, but sometimes it's just terrible. We, we have to call it for what it is. I mean, if you look at that first movement of the Brahms Third, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the way he, he sets it off like a nuclear detonation, you know, and it's all triple forte. But that's not what Brahms wrote. And I'm not saying that because I'm a stickler for what's printed in the score. I'm not, I, it doesn't bother me if people do things like that. But one thing is very interesting about that first movement of the Brahms third, which is the opening motive, you know, those, those sequence of chords that comes back at the beginning of the symphony. He builds a crescendo. He, he okay. only marks a crescendo once. Yes. And that's at the moment of recapitulation. Yes. Or, or, or excuse me, just before the coda, when right. it comes in. And that's when it has its most colossal impact. And the thing that bothers me about Fort Fengler, again, and this has to do with the mythos, not so much the experience of that performance, is that, is that you know, he's supposed to be the, the ultimate organic structural guy. Well, there's no organic structure when you're always triple forte every time the music gets above <laughs> mezzo forte. And, and where you completely ignore where Brahms wrote the climate climax of that movement and where it was supposed to be in that motive. And, and Fort Fengler completely disregards that. What he substitutes may be persuasive in its own way, but it's not um, the keenly observed structural integrity that everybody talks about. It's a guy who's just going ape every time he sees a forte. And, and okay, yeah, that's exciting. It can be exciting, but I, I find it actually um, that it doesn't sustain repeated listening terribly well because I don't think it captures the, 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 the flow of the movement. And I do think that Brahms knew something about those things. <laughs> Probably yeah. more than Fortfengler. I, I feel more about more like that about the finale of the fourth symphony, which I think runs away and it's with itself in a, in a, in an unsatisfactory way. But another great example, which is in the EMI, in the Brahms, that sort of Brahms set, 
um, yeah. is, the, is the beginning of the fourth, uh, the beginning of the second, which blossoms in a way that it just doesn't on the the London Philharmonic set in the box, which oh, I, absolutely, absolutely, you know, which is a bit dead in the water. But there you are, you know. You're right. I mean, you make these comparisons, and you and you hear you hear what what he wanted to get right, and sometimes and, and even in the London Phil set, I talked about that in, in reviewing that set was that you know at the end of the finale just where you expect all hell to break loose because it's got the pauses, the big pauses, the ones that everyone messes up, you know, in live performances. Yeah. Fort Vangler nails them. They're yeah. absolutely beautiful. There are, they're the fabulous thing, thing about him. I think the funny thing about him is that there are moments in, in, in pieces that are known to be tricky where he absolutely just, I mean, Schubert's ninth, his Schubert ninth, I think is a glorious interpretation performance and it, you know the, the one on the gramophone. Yes, yes, and and it's a wonderful performance. And all of the tricky bits, <laughs> you know, in the mm -hmm. finale, all the things that you think are going to just spin out of control, they never do, and they're exciting as hell. I mean, he just he gets it. He, he gets it, which means, of course, that he could do it. The question, the immortal question, is why didn't he do it more regularly? And why are we listening to all of these things where he almost does it when we can listen to the things where he does do it? Too obsessed with avoiding routine, perhaps. You know, everything had to be too spontaneous. Well, yes. I mean, you could avoid routine and you could <laughs> avoid playing the music. Yeah, why not do that? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Or play something besides the same five pieces of Germanic repertoire over and over again. Yeah. Well, both of you have picked excerpts from probably Furt Wengler's most famous recording, his recording of The Ninth, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony from Bayreuth in 1951. Dave, can you explain why you've chosen to highlight the beginning of the Adagio? Because it's deathly dull. <laughs> it's absolutely, it's absolute stasis. It, it, it is, it, it, the, the entire movement takes nearly 20 minutes. I am not a period instrument fan, as some of you may know, um, <laughs> at least not, not necessarily. I mean, you know, the, the proof is in the listening always with these things. But to get through it in 12 minutes and make it faster than the scherzo seems to me insane and impossible to articulate correctly when the, when the quick variations come along, the more ornamental ones. But this, this is, I, we know what he's going after. This is my... Locus classicus, for we, we understand what he's trying to do, and the music is just sitting there. I mean, it, you, could, you could practically learn to play your instrument in the time it takes to move from <laughs> one note to the next. And it's, it's, it's I, I think it's just appalling. <laughs> I really do. I mean, you know, you can force yourself into some sort of hypnotic trance-like state and say, well, I've achieved nirvana in this performance. But when you, when you combine the, 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 utter utter you know static nature of the tempo with the rather appalling woodwind intonation <laughs> um you know here and there throughout the movement and and the result is i think just just painful absolutely painful well what have you got to say to that rob for me the opening of the slow movement in that performance most performances underfoot now because they all hover around the 20 minutes yeah. mark the uh, the slow movement of the ninth is stillness that's what he's evoking with this performance now you know it's not uh, it's not cantable which i think is how it's marked that would need to be something that sings more it's molto cantabile <laughs> yes. yes. but it does achieve a type of stillness which fits the performance which is a performance of extremes if you think of the finale the way the symphony ends uh, with an absolute 
it just races towards the end like nobody else does. Um, the storminess of the first movement, the dancing quality of the second. This is the special quality of the slow movement. I'm not going to say I'd want to hear it like this all the time. I wouldn't. But I do think it fits the conception very well. And it's be, apart from the horn fluff in the, towards the end of the movement, which is a nuisance. <laughs> Incidentally, there's an Orfeo disc of the same performance or maybe a rehearsal of it from the same day, which is much better recorded, which is also available, which doesn't include that horn fluff. So, I mean, I love this performance. Uh, I love the way the Ode to Joy theme builds, the way the inner string parts blossom. Uh, you know, I, the singing is very, very good. I remember when I went to interview Elizabeth Schwarzkopf for for uh, another programme about Furtwängler, she said that um, Furtwängler said to her, you know, you've got to be careful because you're coming towards the end of your days when you can be a ninth soprano. You can't do it anymore. And I don't know what performance that was. It may even have been this 1951 performance. It's 1936. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I love it, I must say. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I love Toscanini in 1939. Uh, you know, I love the Zell performance. I love Kubelik. Uh, especially as Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra recording uh, in for different reasons. But this is different. It, as I said, it, it evokes utter stillness of an almost philosophical, I'm sorry to sound almost like mystical, but uh, uh, almost <laughs> philosophical um, uh, uh, kind. So, yeah, I, I don't agree with you, Dave, but I understand what you're saying. Well, let's, let's do a, again, let's uh, get me wrong. I think Fort Wengler had a great ninth in him. I, I think his conception of the work was absolutely unique. I think it was extraordinarily compelling. I think this performance has extraordinary bits, including the one you chose, which I see we'll hear in a moment. Um, and but of course, for me, the, the great Four Finger Ninth is the Lucerne one. Um, you know, the last one that, that has excellent sound, excellent playing, <laughs> and and does all of the things that his his ninth does. Perhaps not to the ridiculous extremes that we hear in the fabulous Nazi ninth from 1942 that everyone always raves about. That is basically a timpani concerto. <laughs> sonics. I mean, it's not even Fort Wangler that's happening. It's the engineers doing terrible things with sound. I think hearing that Lucerne ninth was, was a revelation for me. And the reason it was a revelation for me is because all of the orchestral balances are in proportion. Even this Bayreuth ninth, it has wonderful moments in it. It really does. But the sonics are not great. And, and so here's a performance where I think we come the closest to what a real honest-to-goodness four-finger performance might have sounded like if you heard it live, because the balances are true. And the this sound is the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah, Vienna Philharmonic. I mean, have you heard the Orfeo version? Yeah, of sure. I mean, no, that is a about, lot but the, Luc the Lucerne one is, is with the Philharmonia. The Lucerne ones with the Philharmonia. Yeah, yeah it's right. with the Philharmonia. But, you know, right. I, it's just, it's, it's what an orchestra sounds like playing Beethoven's Ninth. And you, and you realize, I think, more of what Fort Fengler actually brought to the party because it's not, you're, you're not only hearing a percentage of what got through sonically. 
on the recording, you actually hear something that's a reasonable simulacrum of what an orchestra playing that work sounds like um, with balances that are true. And you hear him actually interpret the work. I, I, I think his, his conception of the ninth is, is magnificent. Truly, I do. Um, and, you know, he deserves full credit for it. I mean, he, he really had a uniquely personal way of looking at that music. Well, to support what you're saying, um, there's a story uh, 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 around that uh, Walter Legg and uh, Fort Wagner were driving away from the festival hall, the festival house, rather, the festival house, mm-hmm. after that performance. And Legg said to him, that was a good performance. I've heard you give better ninths than that. And he was so outraged, Fort Wagner, that he made Legg stop the car and he went out for a walk and came back um, because he obviously didn't feel like that about that performance. Either that or he was so vain he couldn't stand being criticised. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, we're, who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with narcissistic, self-regarding artists. They're all like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's absolutely come on. true. And Fort Wengler, at least Fort Wengler was not only vain, he was incredibly insecure. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons he stayed behind in Nazi Germany was because he was the only one left. Everyone else yeah. had gone. Mind <laughs> you, that's an interesting point because if he left, they could have, they would have had Kylebert, they could have had Arbendroth, they could have had uh, Berm. There were loads of people they could have had. Wouldn't not have been anywhere that, near as not, not not at that point of that caliber. Those were younger conductors, or some of them. Yeah. Some yeah. of them were half dead, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, yeah. For, but, but I, I, we don't need to get into the whole Nazi thing. I don't, no, I don't no, go no. there because Fort Finkler was not a Nazi. Let's let's no. just say that right now. True. He was not a Nazi. Absolutely he did true. what he could in a horrible situation. Yeah. Um, he was politically unbelievably naive. And that's that's just the, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a master's thesis on Der Fall Hindemith on the Hindemith Fort Wengler affair. And uh, and and I, I did a lot of research on this issue, and I really I really think that the whole brouhaha about him and the Nazis is just is just a tempest in a teapot. Yeah. He was an, he was an artist stuck in a situation, and he did what he had to do, and then, you know. So I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not going there with that. I, yeah, I just yeah. think that, but I do I do think that when it came to his colleagues, to his professional standing, and his reputation, he was known to be unbelievably jealous and yeah. quite small minded. I mean, we all know how he felt about Toscanini conducting at Bayreuth. I mean, about these things, and and so I, I he was. You know, sure. When Walter Legg said <laughs> he had a nervous <laughs> breakdown, I mean, this is his entire his entire house of cards, his self esteem <laughs> just collapsed. <laughs> Rob, you've picked an excerpt from the finale of this performance. I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting. This is after the bases do their sort of presenting the, the Ten Commandments from Mount Zion. You know, it's the most, it's the most unbelievable moment. And most people, when it comes to the Ode to Joy theme, let's stop, the bases stop and the theme comes in and that's it. But with Foot Wangler, it's something remarkable happens. The bases stop. 
there's a silence and a pause and a very long pause. And you get the feeling, what's emerging here? What's coming in here? And from the very, very far distance, the Ode to Joy theme starts. And the way this sort of Luftpause, this, this break, is so beautifully judged. I think it's one of the most magical uh, moments in the performance. Well, let's sample that. And this is a quite subjective approach to this famous theme, but of course, in the 50s, they would have understood the cultural significance of it in a way that Beethoven couldn't have ever realised. Well, I think so. And, and the other thing is, which is quite interesting in terms of the Warner set, there's a 1937 recording of the ninth that I think I've mentioned, uh, recorded at Queen's Hall over here with the Berlin Philharmonic. And you get to that same passage, and obviously the engineers took it as a cue to turn over the acetate discs. <laughs> so on the original LP, there was no pause at all. Oh. But uh, And I think this deserves mentioning the sensitivity of the transfer engineers at Warner's. They've actually lengthened the pause, maybe not as much as Footwangler would have done, but enough to make the point. So it's carried through beyond the 1951 performance, this 1937. All the other ninths I've heard with him do exactly the same thing. Wartime, and, 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 it's and it's worth pointing out that, that Beethoven indicated specifically there should be no pause. Well, that's right. <laughs> Isn't there a, at all? <laughs> oh, right, yeah. But, but this is an example of him doing something that to me has a hypnotic effect that isn't rec isn't recognised in the score. So oh, there, there I'll give it to you. There I'll give it to you. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he's in one with the spirit of the work. Yeah. Can <laughs> Rather I just, than the Dave, Can I read you a little something by Kusevitsky here, another great conductor? Because I think it, it sums up a lot of this. It says nowadays we can often hear authorities exclaim in reviewing a performance. Let the music speak for itself. The danger of this maxim lies in its paving the way for mediocrities who simply play a piece of office accurately and then maintain that they let the music speak for itself. Such a statement is not right in any event because a talented artist renders a work as he conceives it according to his own temperament and insight, no matter how painstakingly he follows the score markings. And the deeper the interpreter's insight, the greater and more vital the performance. Now, that for me more or less sums up what Furtwängler was all about. That, 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 I'm using that in a note. There's a magnificent Kuzovitsky CD coming out on the SOM label of Sibelius and Tchaikovsky, I think, early next year. 
But um, John Delansky uh, uh, gave me a transcription of that article. And I thought, you know, I t it's just so wonderful to read somebody who is being so honest. Okay, you know, nowadays the problem is, and I don't know what you think, you get an awful lot of critics and reviewers who start going on about, you know, what's in the score and what isn't in the score and ur texts and all that. It would have been so foreign to somebody like Ford Van Lee, even Toscanini. Uh, sure. No, you're right. You're 100% right. You know. There's no such thing as letting the music speak for itself. It's no. a stupid, stupid notion. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody's doing it. And, and I think maybe, maybe you know, we, we had this little conversation before we began about aging. Yes. And I think, I think when you, maybe I, you never went through this period, but I think when you start as a critic, um, writing about music, you, you, just like Furtwängler with his own inferiority complex and insecurities, we want to show how smart we are. And one of the ways to do that is to take out your score and to go, aha, bong, <laughs> you didn't do letter, letter six in bar yeah. 62. And you, know, yeah. you, want, you want to show that you have authority. Yes. And that you have authority over the performers who are yes. playing the music so that you can write with authority. And there's nothing harmful about that. But I think as you get older <laughs> and maybe wiser, hopefully <laughs> you'll get older and wiser. Um, you know, it, none of that stuff means anything. You know, I mean, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you, you have to go. And I hear maybe I'm getting mystical, but you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 have to, you have to go for a deeper understanding, I think, of what the artists are trying to do and, and give them their due as artists to interpret the work as they see fit and then try and, and, and judge it by whether or not it succeeds according to the criteria that they are establishing as interpreters of the work. And of course, whether they follow the score or not has, has something to do with that. You've got to know what the composer intended. Somewhere in this, there is what the composer intended. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but it's not the be all and end all. And it's, it's not necessary to make points by, by raising those issues. Would, would you agree with that, Rob? I totally agree. I mean, the thing <laughs> is that uh, with scores, I remember very early on when I was reviewing, I, I was mortified because I went on about the fact that Armancourt or somebody didn't take the repeat in the last movement of the Hafner Symphony until, to my absolute horror, I realised there is no repeat in the last movement of the Hafner Symphony. But I did find um, um, uh, Palea, a conductor, Romanian conductor, did actually insert a repeat in the last movement. So I was, I was saved by that. But, you know, you got worried about these sorts of things. Um, and, and yes, you know, but that, when people write about, you know, two bars after letter F and, and all that sort of thing, that they're assuming that people have a score in front of them. If they put a timing after it, that's, that's not too bad, but, um, it, you know, it's not about that. Reviewing no, it's not. <laughs> it, it's about getting across, and if I may say, you do it supremely well yourself, getting across the hub of what's happening when you listen. And if you can do that, and people can come away saying, oh, shit, there's no way I want to hear that, or, yeah, I'm going to have a listen to that and go straight on, order the record or go straight on one of the sites where I can access it, then that's great, um, because that's what... That's what it's all about, and and to generate enthusiasm, general, uh, a genuine enthusiasm is what we're about and what we should be doing. Well, the final one of Rob's picks is also one of my favourite Furtwängler recordings. His recording of Schumann's Fourth Symphony, 
which for me is remarkable for the extraordinary sonority it achieves in the transition between the third and the fourth movements. Rob, you've chosen to highlight the section from later on in the fourth movement. Well, the reason, I mean, you're absolutely right about the third and the fourth movements, because that's one of the great Fort Wengler transitions, the way yeah, he, absolutely. you know, he holds the music on a, on, a, on a breath and then suddenly explodes into the finale. The reason I've chosen this little passage, again, choosing little passages in Fort Wengler is, is very difficult. But the reason I've chosen this is it's one of those cases where you could as well be listening to a live performance. Not all Fort Wengler studio recordings, some of the EMI ones are frankly deathly dull. Uh, but um, this Schumann fourth, just like the Schumann, the Schubert ninth, which Dave was talking about, has that feeling of of, of spontaneity, and you 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 know, just surprised at the end of it, you don't hear a um, a, a, a chorus of, of applause, uh, but it's it's wonderful, and I think this little passage gives you a pretty good idea why I think that. Now, many Furtwängler devotees will claim that he was never as good in the studio as he was live, as you mentioned. And despite the inferior sound quality on the live performances, they are, on the whole, to be preferred. Would you agree that he wasn't a natural studio conductor, and this exceptional studio recording recorded in one take? So what proves that point? Uh, yes, generally speaking. I, I mean, I, I would say that uh, some of his live performances are, are miraculous, and in notwithstanding inaccuracies that that happen or crop up from from bar to bar, or sometimes sometimes in whole passages. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's very interesting because when I started listening to Fort Wengler in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, the HMV LPs of the Beethoven symphonies, I imagined him to be a completely different sort of conductor. You know, he listened to the pastoral symphony, the Beethoven fifth. I later got the 78s, which are also in the Beethoven fifth, which are pre-war, which are in this set. Uh, you know, he seemed to me a very majestic, almost Klemperer-like, almost calming uh, influence. As, as a, but, but of course, he wasn't like that at all, any more than Bruno Walter was. If you heard Bruno Walter live, he was demonic. And Walter was exactly the same. And that's why that Schumann fourth is the exception that proves the rule. You know, there are other things that Haydn 88 is very nicely done. As I said, the Beethoven symphonies um, and, and uh, the Brahms symphonies and the, the concertos with the hoodie menu, in, they're very nicely done. But you wouldn't actually come away from them thinking, oh, this is mightily impressive conducting it's just as dave said about foot wangler as an accompanist generally it's just very very good um i've spoke to menu about foot wangler and he you know he he was um he was full of admiration for him as you know after the war he was one of the few jewish artists to play with him uh and um 
I think I don't know whether it's in this box, but one of the booklets, which I was thrilled to see, has a photograph from 1926 of Furtwängler standing next to Bronislaw Hubermann, who's one of my favourite violinists and who had the greatest admiration. They had mutu mutually admired each other. And my goodness, don't I wish that we had a recording of the Beethoven or the Brahms uh, with Huberman and Furtwängler. Unfortunately, tragically, I don't think one survives. But um, yeah, I'd say, generally speaking, the live performances tell a truer story than the studio ones. And the studio ones very often are at a, at a relatively low ebb. Tristan and Valkyra and Fidelia, the opera recordings being exceptions, at least up to a point. Uh, now they're they're marvellous. Uh, but the symphonic recordings, yeah. Uh, you know, even the Leonora number two that Dave played an extract from doesn't compare with the live one uh, from uh, the DG put out. Well, you know, I think I think it, 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 my take on that question whether he was a natural studio artist or is is a little bit different, but 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 pretty much pretty much I think in keeping with that, I don't think he was a natural conductor at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, in, 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 no, I, I, I mean that. I mean that. You know, in, in the same way that that someone like Schnabel wasn't a natural pianist. No, he was you a know? musician I mean, first. Kurt Wengler, well, he he was going into architecture or something originally, and he and he and he and he tried his hand at composition. And he really wasn't a very good composer, and and he he eventually fell into conducting. A lot of conductors fall into it that way. I mean, for lack of ability to do something else, Igor Markevich was one of the great. Oh, great but he was a good composer, fabulous I mean, composer, and and an amazing conductor. Yeah, but, you know, but with but with Fort with Fort Valley, like I said, you know, he he was doing battle with the music. It seems to me so often, you know, and again, that sense of struggle that comes through in so many of his performances, it it it, it was only fitfully there, and whether it was there live or in the studio, when you think about it, I mean, he gave many more live performances than he did studio recordings. So statistically speaking, um, we're going to hear more of, I think, the true artist in him. Um, in live circumstances yeah. than we ever could uh, on a date because he was not the kind of conductor you could say on the 12th you're going to do Beethoven's ninth and it's going to be marvelous <laughs> I mean he would be would show up for the session but whether or not the spirit possessed him or not well we, we, we you know you, you couldn't know in advance that's not the kind of artist he was no. and I think that um, you know part of it uh, you know, it's interesting to read his comments on his own recordings about how frustrated he was with the recording process, because on the one hand, he was absolutely correct. You know, after the Tristan, he said, you know, now maybe they're ready to record, you know, music. He was right. The sound was crappy. The circumstances were uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it was all very artificial and unnatural. And and you, you he, he was absolutely correct to point that out. And right, correct. I mean, correct in saying it. You can't argue with it. On the other hand, was he the kind of guy who had the professionalism and the ability to make the most of that situation, to understand the medium, to present himself in the best possible light in all circumstances? No, he just wasn't. And so, and so we have to take, um, you know, the, what we have with a, a large grain of salt when it comes to his studio recordings, even when they're approved. I think he did probably approve some of them because they were more or less accurate, but certainly not what he would have achieved um, un under live circumstances. But, um, 
by the same token, I just find it just so dreary that we have to plow through all of this stuff to find the gems. You know, I mean, it's 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 a lot of time. You know, we, you know, we have a lot of options as record collectors, a lot of a lot of wonderful performances of the same repertoire by Forfangler and by others, and those others are not worse. They're not less. They're different. And so, and so we have to decide how we're going to spend our time. And are we going to spend, you know, hours and hours of irreplaceable life, um, you know, trying to find the one great Beethoven fifth among seven or eight others? Or can we find seven or eight great Beethoven fifths and just pick one by Fort Fangler that represents him at his best? Um, you know. I think if you're a real enthusiast for his conducting, you you're quite happy to go from one to the other. This is the sure, one. But that's what enthusiast means. Yes, <laughs> I, yes I know. You, you, you know, you go from one to the other and, and you experiment and you can be extremely surprised. I was listening to the wartime fifth that's in the, um, the Berlin Philharmonic box and the finale is unbelievable. I mean, it really is unbelievable. The transition from the scherzo to the finale. I mean, Toscanini in 1939, I always thought was the, uh, had the measure of it completely, but not in comparison to Ford Wengler. Um, it, it, oh my goodness, it's, it's explosive. It's wonderful. And, you know, you can just chance upon these things. You can sometimes read people who, who, who praise performances to the skies and you go to them and you don't actually think much of them. I'm sure you must have experienced that many times. I know I certainly have. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I, I agree with you about that transition to the finale. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's marvelous. And actually, um, a lot of the wartime Beethoven is very, very good. I mean, yes. it's really, but, but I will say this, you know, it is very, it's always funny, ironic to me how people who talk and Fort Wengler himself, who talked about Fort Wengler, did you read the, 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 the book about his, his philosophy about his writings? I had that. Well, Cause I wrote, a I wrote a review of it and yeah. I, he, he was, he was a moron philosophically. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he had no idea. It was just a garbled mess of confused, confused sort of proto-national socialist, I hate to say, ideas of Germanness and wholeness and or unity. And he, he tossed out these loaded terms, you know, with great sententiousness, not having a single clue what any of it meant. It's just awful stuff. But but one of the funny things about the whole Fort Wengler cult is that they talk about what he did, the unity and the wholeness of the organic business and all that stuff. But when they talk about his performances, they do exactly what we've done. We've said, oh, this moment is great. That moment is great. Oh, this passage is incredible. But what about the rest of it? I mean, what about the, the first movement of that Beethoven fifth where the opening four note motive can have anything from five to seven notes, <laughs> depending on where he is. I mean, you, you know, you can't have it both ways. Either he's a conductor of nothing but climaxes and special moments, or he really does get this overall architectural. I think you have, you have to take it. You have to take the performance as a whole. I suppose at the beginning of Beethoven, five it's like everybody taking their seats you know before they start. <laughs> right. and then they start while they're still doing it i can take all that i don't mind it um what i can't take is a performance that never takes fire at any stage and and there are plenty of those not well there are a few with him but 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 mostly with other conductors there are a uh, lot 
There are yeah, a lot. Yeah. Gener- That's why critics are so necessary, Rob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what would the world do without us? <laughs> That's the real question. Spend less money. <laughs> Which Presto wouldn't be terribly happy about. Absol- absolutely. Well, in the end, is Fert Wengler a somewhat tragic figure? Somewhat out- someone who outlived his own time, perhaps? A romantic figure born 50 years too late? Uh... I don't know. I don't think so. I think he was, in a way, he was very much of his time. You know, he was a, a, a deeply romantic figure uh, who had uh, ideas about interpretation that were based on a philosophy that uh, he adopted uh, from Heinrich Schenker, as I said earlier on. And, um, you know, he left this legacy, which I think we can learn from. I don't think a Wengler would have been possible today. The, 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 you know, the climate is wrong. The sort of new objectivity doesn't suit what he's trying to do with music, or that's the wrong way to put it, trying to do with music, what he feels about music and what he expresses through the music. So I think that he was of his time. I don't think he was born a minute too early or too late. I think that given the circumstances of his career, um, he communicated that was the tragedy i mean if you listen to the wartime recordings you know i used to find that being jewish i used to find that very difficult i used to feel terribly guilty about listening to a a performance of a bruckner or a beethoven symphony that had i been alive at the time i couldn't have listened to because i probably would have been in a concentration camp or, or or worse or in exile uh i don't look at it like that now i now feel myself privileged to be hearing the work of someone who wanted to save what he could and had wanted to devote himself a hundred percent to german culture so that it could emerge after the horrific um happenings of the second world war intact more or less none of the other conductors alive at that time not carrion not berm not carbert not arbendrote not cabaston none of them could have done it the way he did because he had that sort of proselytizing quality that they simply didn't have and um that's why i think he was so important I what 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 he said. <laughs> I, I, I agree a hundred percent with what Rob said. I mean, it's very interesting. You, you know, Wengler, the, the, the idea that somebody is out of time generally as a sort of historian background always kind of annoys me because everything is of its time. It, it can't be elsewhere. But Wengler, if you look at, he didn't he didn't live to be that old. He died relatively. I mean, young as far as conductors go. I mean. You know, <laughs> And and if you if you I, I did a, t- a chart once for a paper I was writing about, you know where conductors were and, and interpretation just for my own curiosity, I mean you, you look at the list of conductors who were older than Fortfanger who were diametrically opposed to what he w- was aesthetically. I mean Toscanini was twenty years older, Monteux was ten years older. You know these are all conductors who were known for for perhaps adapting themselves better to the modern world, to the modern aesthetic, to a more classical or classicizing approach to the repertoire, a more objective approach, if you want to call it that. But they were older than Fort Fengler. And I think that the more you look at hist- the history of music and performance, the more you realize that there has always been this duality. There are interpreters who are very strict and very logical. I mean, C.P.E. Bach wrote an essay about it in his in his preface to his his sonatas with varied reprises, he talks about whether or not uh, someone should 
do ornaments. And there, and he says there are performers who are incredibly, you know, flowery and, and virtuosic. And there are some who are no ability to ornament at all, but they're fabulous performers who can play the music strictly. And most composers tend to come down on the side of the ones who do not mess around and play things relatively strictly. But there are always these personalities who are as much uh, partners in the composition process, you want to call it that, when they're performing as, as uh, you know, others who are not. And it's, it's not a historical thing. It's a human thing. And, and Fort Wengler was, um, he was, as, as Rob says, he, he had um, a, a genuine philosophy, an ideology, maybe a stupid ideology, but he <laughs> had it. And what matters is not whether it was smart or silly. What matters is how he was able to realize it in terms of his activities as a musician, as an artist. And most artists are not terribly bright. I mean, that's okay. That's not what they're, they're not called upon to, you know, solve mathematical problems or invent things. They're called upon to make music. And, and for whatever reason they do it, however they justify it, they, they do it in their own way. And Fort Fengler was a, a unique individual artist. And, and he deserves all the credit in the world for being that and for doing that. And I, I don't believe that he was, uh, you know, out of his time or any, any different from anything else. In fact, today, you know, we talk about that his style would be out of fashion. Those artists do exist, but they play period instruments. <laughs> They're the HIP people. They're the Nicholas Harnicourts, the Franz Brugens, the guys who claim to be subscribing to some sort of orthodoxy of authenticity, but who are in truth as whacked out <laughs> and, and subjective and excessive as, 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 as would make Fort Wengler blush. Well, I wouldn't agree with 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 Arnoncourt. I think Arnoncourt was genuinely individual, and the thing he said, I met him. I, well, that's what I yes, exactly. Quite a few said, times, yes. quite a few times, and and he said, I don't, I'm not interested in period instruments to hear what the music sounded like in Bach's time or Vivaldi's time. I'm interested in them because they make the music sound better. That's how he viewed it. And I think if you listen to the, a lot of the Bach cantatas in his recording, those sort of rustic, ruddy-faced, um, incredibly spirited performances with all those wonderful um, sonorities, especially among the woodwinds, they do sound better. And they well, do that's, sound just my point. that's just my point, though. Right. Okay. I mean, he's playing the period instruments, but he's using them in a way as an interpreter, as a yeah. conductor. He was as subjective... <laughs> And is oh, willful so and the first to I, admit it. I mean, just exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But where where you find that kind of Fort Wenglerian, if you want to call it that, romanticism is in the period instrument movement. In these, yeah. because the one thing period instrument ensembles never had was conductors. And you have these people who come in there with their 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 handle concerto grosso, and they're going crazy on them. I it's must say, talking about handle concerto grossi, I absolutely adore. I mean, there aren't any in this set, but but in the DG set, um, Opus Six Number Ten, uh, and I mean, he he rearranges all the movements, does all sorts of things, <laughs> but they are so interesting. Well, um, it's, it's 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 his yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. his conception of the thing, but, anyway, but not, but not his Brandenburg Concerto Number Five with no, him playing is, the cadenza. I remember <laughs> I interviewed, which is, which is which is Nirvana in all the wrong way. I interviewed <laughs> Reinhard Goebel years and years and years ago, and I said, "What about Footwanglers?" He was outraged. I should mention. I said, "What about Footwanglers Brandenburg Concerto?" And he said, 
Brandenburg concerto number five. We thought, bang, we said that's not a Brandenburg concerto. <laughs> he was a he was an outrage that I should even mention it. Um, well, have you, have you heard have you heard Reinhard Goebel conducting accompanying the Mozart concerti, violin concerti, with who? Oh, I some period instrument, Saskola. If we want to no. talk about that, <laughs> who doesn't no, know what the hell she's doing? What, what's it like? Unspeakably hard. It's Fort Vengler doing the Brandenburgs. That's not a Mozart concerto. <laughs> That's why I thought of that. He should talk. He uh, should talk. Oh, lovely. Lovely. I must look that out. I must look that out. If you want, yes, if you really want to be outraged. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go on the I'll trade I'll, I'll I'll go through the net and try and find it. Well, apart from Fort Vengler, what have you both been listening to? Uh, what have I been listening to? Um, well, quite a lot of stuff. Harold Samuel playing Bach on APR, which is um, a, a number of first recordings of pieces that uh, a, a gramophone premieres, of Igor Markovich sets, which I'm sure oh, uh, yeah. Dave has been listening <laughs> to. Some great stuff there. The great stuff. The Polish Symphony, I've never heard a performance to touch it. Yeah, Tchaikovsky was amazing. Um, absolutely wonderful. Um, shall I tell you a little story before we go about Markovich? Sure. Uh, when I was working at Boozy and Hawks, the music publishers, years ago, um, they took on Markovich as a composer. And um, uh, there was a piece called, I think, Toccata for Piano Solo. And they didn't have a score, but they wanted a recording of somebody playing it so i was a, a sort of junior at that time and i had to creep under a piano with a microphone while while nikita magaloff played this Takata, <laughs> who was a friend of marvovich's i don't know whether that's that recording still exists but um interesting interesting composer but some of these performances the zarzuela discs the two oh discs that was are, wonderful oh. Those are fabulous. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I only have the, the, the Decca slash Phillips boxes out, and the DG is coming. I yeah, think that's just fun. arrived. That's just arrived. And then there's a Scribendum one, which right. is mixes them two and has all the concert hall stuff. Like, it's got um, the, the three three concert hall discs. Yes, that's right. They're in there as well. So, yeah. Which is all actually really cool repertoire. I mean, it's it is. It is very interesting. The Clan Bleu. Strange little Neo. And Jack in the Box by Sati. And the Biche. And Dave, you'll be, you'll be continuing your YouTube videos, no doubt? Oh, I will be. I mean, I just, you were talking about things that have just come out. I want you to sell some records here. So let's talk about the Kit Armstrong Bird and Bull disc. Wow. What's that on? Uh, Deutsche Grammophon. Two discs of bird and bull keyboard music played by Kid Armstrong. What a debut for a, on a modern piano. It's stunning. Oh, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Just fantastic. That is, that is absolutely glorious. Um, and and uh, I really, I've gotten more pleasure. And it's great in your car. Everybody, if you've got car systems, <laughs> listen to bird and bull when you're on the road. It's two hours and 15 minutes. It kills time like nothing you've ever heard. As long as you don't knock them over, bird and bull. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like a pub. It's a bird and bull, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, thank you very much, Rob and Dave, for that discussion. It's remarkable that there's still so much to discuss and debate about a figure who died nearly 70 years ago. 
And I'm sure the debate and discussion will continue as long as people listen to recordings made by this unique figure. The complete Wilhelm Furtwängler on record is, of course, available from Presto Classical. Thanks both to my amazing guests, Rob Cowan. Thank you. It's been an de absolute delight. And Dave Hurwitz. Again, thank you so much for having me back. And thank you, Rob. It's just been such a pleasure having Brilliant. the opportunity to talk to you directly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, of course, to my producer, Matt Groom, and you for listening.